Hello and welcome to this week's lecture for um, Phil 2500, Introduction to Feminist Philosophy. Today we are going to talk about Christy Dodson's paper Tracking Epistemic Violence, Tracking Practices of Silence, or sorry, Tracking Practices of Silencing. And um, this one I think was a challenging article. I don't know if other people found that. I found that there were a lot of new terms that Dodson gives us in this, um, this article. So hopefully in this lecture we can go through it together and um, try to make it uh, clearer, try to help, help you understand this article. And one thing that I'm going to do in this lecture is um, some sections of the essay I don't go through in, in depth. So for example, we're uh, Dodson gives us two different kinds of microaggressions, micro-invalidations and micro-insults. And we're not going to spend um, much time unpacking those things because uh, I think there's, there's so much to take in in this article that we're going to set some of the discussion aside just to try to focus on the main points. So to begin a little bit about Christy Dodson, Christy Dodson is a professor of philosophy at Michigan State University. She researches in epistemology, which is what we're reading her in, meta-philosophy and feminist philosophy, particularly women of color and black feminists. Specifically, Dr. Dodson works on how knowledge-related concerns play a role in maintaining and obscuring oppression. She has published numerous journal articles in political epistemology, black feminist philosophy, and meta-philosophy. Dr. Dodson is currently working on a monograph entitled Bad Magic, Normative Epistemology in a World of Difference, which is under contract with Oxford University Press. So let's dive into this, this lecture, our last lecture before reading week. I don't know if other people are craving reading week or excited about it, but um, I definitely am. So this uh, there's a let's jump in so tracking epistemic violence tracking practices of silences of silencing i'm having trouble with that and i want to start actually in the conclusion because i think there's a line in the conclusion that helps frame this discussion in a really helpful way so dodson says in the conclusion that um Understanding epistemic violence in testimony can aid in identifying practices of silencing. And she writes in the conclusion that tracking practices of silencing is really hard because they're very quiet, right? They're practices where people are silent, so they can be really hard to identify. And especially, I mean, Dodson gives us two um, two different kinds of silencing, testimonial silencing. So when we think about um, testimony, we can just think about people sharing knowledge, right? It's not um, just, for example, testimony on the stand, but you can use that idea of um, t giving testimony on the stand in court to kind of inform what testimony means. So testimony is... Um, about sharing knowledge, being being a knower. Testimonies about saying things. 
So Dodson rightfully points out that, look, tracking practices of testimonial silencing can be really hard. And especially she gives us two kinds of um, testimonial silencing in this paper. One is testimonial quieting, and that's where someone is, you know, telling you things and you dismiss that or you don't, you don't, you don't see that person as a, a knower or you don't see that or you see them as a knower who has less credibility than someone else so you might still see them as a knower you just might think that they're not a knower in the same way someone else is that they're a less credible knower um, so that's the first kind testimonial quieting but the second kind of silencing that we're going to look at in this paper is what Dodson calls testimonial smothering. And this is where, um, where because, of an inter because of an interaction between speaker and hearer, the speaker uh, silences themselves. So maybe they were going to say something else, but because of your reaction, they, they're just gonna stay silent. And we'll go through more about why Dodson thinks this happens and the context in which she thinks this happens. But this is a good example of a type of silencing that's going to be really hard to find, right? Because it's going to involve um, someone, a, a coerced self-silencing. So it's si someone not, not saying something because of um, a, a particular interaction with the hearer. So I think so the thing to keep in mind that is helpful from the conclusion that is um, that this understanding of epistemic violence that Dodson wants to point out that involves these hard to track practices of silencing is by dispersing, she says, by dispersing the burden of proof for proving the existence of practices of silencing between a speaker and an, and an audience, as opposed to the sole burden being placed on the speaker who has been silenced. So we can keep that in the back of our minds as we go through this, that part of what Dodson is doing is trying to give us ways to point out these things that involve not just us watching the speaker, but looking at the the interaction between speaker and hearer to try to identify silencing practices. So we have just more information to look at to try to find where these moments of silencing are happening. So let's begin. So epistemic, we're talking about epistemic violence here. So Dodson points out that there's an epistemic side to, co to colonialism. So um, there's part of colonialism, part of uh, people being colonized is also about knowledge, also is about a way that knowledge is treated. And so she says there's an epistemic side to, to colonialism and this is the devastating effect of the disappearing of knowledge where local or provincial knowledge is dismissed due to privileging alternative, often Western epistemic practice. And um, 
this we had an example in another lecture about the Franklin expedition and the way that oral histories Inuit oral histories were dismissed right so this is a I think that's a great example of I mean a terrible example but a useful example of the epistemic side of uh, colonialism this the way that oral histories for so long were just dismissed as being less less um, accurate less valuable not knowledge at all compared to Western epistemic practices like written history, right? That's the difference, oral versus written. Um, so we have a, in her introduction, we have a summary of the paper. So the thesis, we could say, is um, Dodson is attempting to give a reading of epistemic violence in circumstances where silencing occurs and that this can help distinguish the different ways that members of oppressed groups are silenced with respect to giving testimony. So there's going to be three moves in this paper. First, we need to know what epistemic violence is as it occurs in testimony. Um, and then two, we're going to need a we're going to need to use this definition of epistemic violence in order to identify these two different practices of testimonial silencing that Dodson wants to pick up. So the first is what we've, we've talked about, the testimonial quieting. So this is a failure by the audience to recognize the speaker as a knower, or a failure to recognize them in the jargony term of epistemic agent. And then the second way is testimonial smothering, which we, which we also already talked about. And testimonial smothering is going to be um, this self-silencing where you, um, where the speaker doesn't say anything, um, kind of self-polices their speech because of their interaction with the audience, because of something that their audience or their hearer does. And um, Dodson says that Finally, the claim is that these two practices of silencing are predicated upon different formations of epistemic violence in silencing that we can begin to delineate with contextual detail practices of silencing on the ground. So basically, these are two practices of testimonial silences that are different types of that represent different types of epistemic violence. And by, by looking at these two types, by distinguishing these two types and describing how these happen, we can start to pick out moments of these actually in context. Okay, so first, we need to know what epistemic violence is. So the epistemic, the definition of epistemic violence in testimony that we get from Dodson is a refusal intentional or unintentional so intention doesn't matter of an audience or a hearer to communicatively reciprocate a linguistic exchange owing to pernicious uh, ignorance okay so there's a lot going on in there so let's go through that a little bit more slowly so what's epistemic violence in testimony it's a refusal intentional or unintentional of a hearer 
to hear the speaker because of harmful ignorance. And now we have lots of new, we have lots of terms in this definition that need to be defined. So we need to know what is this communicative reciprocation that um, Dodson's talking about and what is pernicious ignorance? So communicative reciprocation is basically just this idea that one condition of successful communication is to be heard, right? To be heard and understood. And this is because one fundamental feature of linguistic communication is that there's a relation of dependence between um, the speaker and the audience. So the speaker is dependent on the audience in a certain way to be for their for their act of communication to be successful, right? So if we if I'm talking to you and we don't speak the same language, our communication is very unlikely to be successful, right? Because it's you're not going to understand me, and that's um, that's part of what makes a makes successful communication is being understood. You I communicate something. You hear it and understand. So there's this underlying feature of linguistic communication, which is a relation of dependence between speaker and audience. So this is the condition of reciprocity. When there is reciprocity among people, they recognize one another's speech as it is meant to be taken. They understand. And this has two parts. So an audience who, who um, participates reciprocally does not merely, one, understand the speaker's words, but also in taking the words as they are meant to be taken satisfies a condition for the speaker having done the communicative thing they intended. So this is just getting at the two sides of understanding, right? So, um, so the reciprocity is trying to say, look, there's... The one thing that happens, which is the audience understands, the hearer understands, but also that does something to the speaker. That means the speaker successfully communicated. So the speaker did what they intended to do. So the success of a speaker's attempt to communicate ultimately depends on the audience. This is the relation of dependence between speaker and audience. The necessity of being heard means the speaker is vulnerable in linguistic exchanges because an audience may or may not meet the needs of the speaker in a given exchange, the, this need for being understood. And the speaker has no direct way to force the audience to hear them, right? There's no way that you can force someone to understand. You're, you just have to try to do that by communicating. And it's this denial of reciprocity, it's this denial of, um, of hearing, this refusal to hear that is central to epistemic violence on Dotson's picture. But the other term that we still need to know about is pernicious ignorance. And you can understand per pernicious to mean harmful. So we're talking harmful ignorance. Dotson defines pernicious ignorance as any reliable ignorance or we'll come to see that this can also be understood as counterfactual incompetence 
that in a given context harms another person or other persons. Okay, so now we have a definition for pernicious ignorance, which is any reliable ignorance or counterfactual incompetence that in a given context harms another person or other persons. But now we have a new term that we need to define, which is reliable ignorance and counterfactual incompetence. But we'll leave counterfactual incompetence for a little bit now and just talk about reliable in ignorance. So what is reliable ignorance? Well, reliable ignorance is an ignorance that is consistent or follows from a predictable epistemic gap in cognitive resources. So we know something about this, right? This is, um, this is kind of our conceptual resources, epistemic standpoint, situated knowledge. So all these ideas are kind of floating around in re reliable ignorance. So it's a kind of not knowing that's consistent or follows from a predictable uh, knowledge gap in somebody's um, knowing. So let's take this definition of reliable ignorance and put it back into pernicious ignorance. So now our definition of pernicious ignorance would go something like this. Any ignorance that is consistent or follows from a predictable knowledge gap that in some given context harms another person, that's going to be pernicious ignorance or harmful ignorance. So we know that harmful ignorance or pernicious ignorance is going to be context dependent. So we need to know what the specific context is, who the specific um, speakers and hearers are. We're not going to be able to just say, oh, this exchange is just in every case going to um, involve uh, testimonial silencing and epistemic violence. So one might wonder, well, what kind of harms are caused by epistemic violence? And um, Dodson is going to give us some examples of harms. Uh, for example, we have with testimonial quieting, we're going to have um, harm being done to one's intellectual courage, harm being done to one's epistemic agency, harm that's done to entire traditions of entire groups. So we can you know, I think that the dismissal of oral histories as knowledge um, is a good example of, of that last harm. But ultimately, the assessment of what kind of harm results from epistemic violence, Dotson argues, is also going to be context dependent. So we have a better sense now, hopefully, of what epistemic violence is. So... If, just to remind ourselves, epistemic violence in testimony is a refusal, intentional or unintentional, of an audience to communicatively reciprocate a linguistic exchange, which is just a long way of kind of saying hear, understand in a particular way. Because remember that um, it's okay on Dodson's picture not to understand when you know that you're not understanding. Um, but we'll get into that later. So the right kind of the right kind of reciprocity, which doesn't necessarily mean understanding. And this refusal is because 
of pernicious ignorance, which is a reliable ignorance that causes harm. So we have our definition now of um, epistemic violence, but Dodson says, okay, look, you might, after reading this definition of epistemic violence, you might already have three objections. And she's going to take us through those three objections in order to give us a better picture of what epistemic violence in testimony is for her. But I think we'll stop there and take up those three objections in the next lecture. So I will see you soon. Hello, and welcome to part two of our lecture on Christy Dotson's article, uh, Tracking Epistemic Violence, Tracking Practices of, Silences, of Silencing. I think I've got gotten that wrong every single time. <laughs> And uh, this is for Phil 2500, Intro to Feminist Philosophy. So we're talking about Christy Dodson's uh, understanding of epistemic violence. And she gives us three objections to her concept of epistemic violence in order to flesh out what this word means. So here are the three objections. One, the objection to pernicious ignorance or harmful ignorance. And the objection is basically that there's no special category of ignorance that's harmful. All ignorance is harmful. And Dodson's response is, is to say, yes, she agrees in the sense that all ignorance has the potential to be harmful. But she says, ignorance becomes harmful only in certain circumstances. And we might think of of circumstances where ignorance is not only not harmful but it's beneficial or it's a positive thing so learning is an example that um, Dawson gives right not knowing things is a big motivator a lot of times to learn that's why you want to learn about something because you don't know it and you want to know it or you want to know more about it so ignorance can be positive in other context. So this is Dodson's response to the first objection. The second objection is that the definition of epistemic violence is too broad. So here Dodson gives us the example of the three-year-old. So the three-year-old's the audience and they um, set fire to something even after the parent, who's the speaker, told them not to. So the here we have a situation where the um the speaker is is misunderstood by the audience the three-year-old um and it causes harm let's say the um the three-year-old sets a fire that you know burns burns the the adult the speaker so it looks like on dodson's view that this is going to be epistemic violence and testimony there's a refusal unintentional by the three-year-old to understand the speaker's words their parent and this is a this is a reliable ignorance the three-year-old is is situated because of their age in um, a way that they are reliably going to be ignorant of what the speaker is communicating and in this in this particular context, it harms another person. So on Dawson's view, this uh, is epistemic violence. And you might think, 
you know, the objection is, well, do we want this to be an example of epistemic violence? Is are, is the fact that it catches this situation with a three-year-old and their parent a problem for the definition? Does it mean that the definition's too broad? And Dodson kind of just bites this objection and says, you know what, the, the definition's not too broad because look, the reality of epistemic violence is that it's a broad practice. And epistemic violence on Dodson's picture doesn't require intention. It doesn't require capacity. So here we have a thrill who's just not capable of, of understanding. And on Dodson's picture, that's fine. That's not a problem. And so Dodson just bites this bullet, so to speak, which is something you can do with your own um, uh, objections in your final paper. That's a, one way to respond to an objection. So Dodson says, yeah, the, the, the three-year-old does, there is epistemic violence there. The child does silence the speaker who warned them about the effects of fire, facilitating causing a failed communicative exchange. And importantly, the reliable ignorance in this case causes harm. So we have uh, epistemic violence. And the third objection is that um, this definition in some way doesn't go far enough. So again, this is about this is about this idea of harmful ignorance or pernicious ignorance. So if pernicious ignorance is a requirement of epistemic violence, as it is on Dotson's picture, then there are going to be instances where a speaker is silenced, but because it doesn't result from the kind of reliable ignorance that um, Dodson says is necessary for uh, pernicious ignorance, harmful ignorance, which is necess a necessary feature of epistemic violence, then when we don't have this, when we don't have pernicious violence, even if we have silencing, we don't have uh, epistemic violence, we don't have harm. And the objection is, well, maybe all instances of silencing are harmful. And here, Dodson's move is to draw a distinction between two kinds of silencing. One are instances of silencing, and one is a practice of silencing. So in an instance of silence, it's just a single non-repetitive instance of an audience failing to hear the speaker. But a practice of silencing is a repetitive, reliable occurrence of an audience failing to meet the dependencies of a speaker. And this one, this one, as we know, is caused by reliable ignorance. So this is how Dodson responds to this last objection, is to say, look, sure, maybe, you, maybe you're right. All instances of silencing might be harmful, but that's just not what she's interested in. She's interested in practices of silencing and and that's what she wants to explore in this paper so uh, in this third objection this is where we get this discussion of counterfactual incompetence which is another way to like a synonym for a synonym for reliable ignorance on Dotson's picture so first we need to know what a counterfactual is so a counterfactual 
is relating to or expressing what is not the case. So for example, if kangaroos had, ta had no tails, then they would topple over. Or you might think um, counterfactual thinking is when you modify a, something that's happened and then assess the consequences. So if I hadn't been speeding, then I never would have got that ticket, which, never, which wouldn't have cost me $200, and I would have been able to buy the ticket to that concert with friends. So that's what counterfactual, counterfactuals are. Things that are not factual. And um, Dodson defines counterfactual competence as about being able to track the truth of some proposition, some statement. So in a way, you're kind of, it's about getting things right. So if P is not true, then you don't believe P. If P is true, then you do believe P. So there's this, um, con there's the right kind of connection between the truth of P and what you think about P. So when P is true, you think P is true. When P is false, you think P is false. So there's this right kind of connection between um, some, some statement and the truth the truth condition of that, so the truth value of that statement, and then what you believe about that statement. Those things are connected in the right way. So counterfactual is incompetence is where these things are not lining up. So Dodson says it's an epistemic state. So it's a kind of um, knowledge state or knowing, a knowing state that involves a misalignment or a she Dodson writes a maladjusted sensitivity to the truth with respect to some bit of knowledge or domain of knowledge so a person who possesses a reliable ignorance possesses an insensitivity to or abject failure to detect truth with respect to some domain of knowledge. So one example that has always been um, striking, or is I think striking, is the failure to see other as others as human beings. So we have lots of examples throughout history and from around the wor world where human beings were not seen as um, human beings. And think about the mountain of evidence that had to be rejected in order to in order to maintain this lie there's a really weird misalignment between um, the truth of that statement you know s s this person is a human being and the beliefs that people hold this person is not a human being and the I mean it's just the evidence is overwhelming, but there's just this missile that just there's this really weird relationship between um, that fact, that proposition, and the knowing and the beliefs of um, of the of the knower. So Dodson writes this state of reliable ignorance or this counterfactual incompetence is a failure to track to consistently track certain truths 
And when this failure to track truths also happens to cause harm, then we have pernicious ignorance. We have uh, harmful ignorance. So this, remember this, we're talking about this in the context of that third objection about um, silencing, all silences being harmful. So Dotson says, this is not to say that instances of silencing are not harmful, but where epistemic violence, when we're talking about epistemic violence, we're talking about a practice of silencing that is harmful and reliable. And intentions and culpability are not important. They don't determine whether there's epistemic violence in testimony. What does is reliable ignorance, harm, and this failed linguistic exchange. That's what determines epistemic violence. So we get now into our first kind of silencing, which is testimonial quieting. So this occurs when an audience fails to identify a speaker as annoying. So I don't know if um, people in class have had this experience, but sometimes you, you'll you say something, you'll make a point, you'll think you have a really good thought in class, you feel really good about it, you put up your hand, you say it, there's not much reaction. And then a few minutes later, um, someone else puts up their hand and says the same thing, and there's just a totally different reaction. So one, one way to explain that, one possible explanation, is just different um, values in epistemic agency. People, people can be seen to have, to have different levels of competence as knowers. And Dodson points out that certain groups, certain social groups, have been um, stereotyped, the way they're stereotyped includes... Uh, a lack of credibility. So one example, one fairly recent example is the way Trump has talked about um, Mexican people. This very ignorant and incredibly racist depiction of Mexican people as untrustworthy, which is uh, an example of this, where the stereotype, the racist stereotype includes a lack of credibility, includes devaluing them as as knowers, as being able to to know things because they're they're stereotyped, their racist stereotype involves this um, untrustworthiness. And as Dodson points out, this is important because, or one of the reasons this is important, is because the speaker is dependent on the audience to for them to be able to communicate properly for them to for there to be successful communication there's a certain dependency on the audience the audience has to do something for there to be successful communication it's not enough just for the speaker to be clear and frank and open and in in this section this is where we get the list of harms that can be done because of this uh, silencing. So we have the harm that's done to one's intellectual courage, the harm being done to one's epistemic agency as a knower, and the harm that can be done to whole intellectual traditions of entire groups.
and determining what kind of harm is caused in a specific example of testimonial quieting is going to depend on the context. So now we're on to Dodson's second type of testimonial uh, silencing, which is testimonial smothering. So testimonial smothering is the truncating or the cutting short of your testimony in order to ensure that the testimony only uh, contains content for which one's audience demonstrates testimonial competence. So this is a type of coerced self-silencing, according to Dodson. So for example, I recently had a friend who has a trans nephew tell me that she, in a conversation with a good friend of hers, she brought up her nephew and the friend um, kind of out of the blue went on a transphobic rant. So imagine that the reason she brought up her trans ne nephew was because she wanted to vent about her brother, his dad, just his parent, they're just having parenting disagreements. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that her nephew is trans. It's, you know, it's just brother sister things. They're, they're disagreeing about, um, they're disagreeing about parenting style, say. But after her friend has gone on this transphobic rant, she she self-silences. She doesn't say anymore because she's worried that whatever she says about her brother's parenting style is going to be heard through this transphobic lens and affirm these false transphobic beliefs. So she self-silences and this is an example of testimonial smothering. So let's get into testimonial smothering in a bit more detail. So Dodson gives us three criteria for testimonial smothering. The first is that the content of the testimony must be unsafe and risky. The second is that the audience demonstrates testimonial incompetence with respect to the content of the testimony of the speaker. And third, that the testimonial incompetence must follow from or appear to follow from pernicious ignorance. So let's look at this first one. So the, the content of the testimony must be unsafe and risky. What, what does that mean? So for Dodson, unsafe testimony is testimony that an audience can easily fail to find fully intelligible or understandable and it runs the risk of leading to the formation of false beliefs that can cause social, political, or material harm. So in Dodson, we get the example from Crenshaw of black communities not talking about domestic violence in their communities because of the way this could be heard by other hearers, probably most likely white hearers, but you know, other, other people outside of the community as being confirmation of racist stereotypes about black men. And in my example of the, of the transphobic person, we could say, you know, that my friend was worried that this would, that if she vented about her brother's parenting, that this would affirm these false transphobic beliefs that her friend has suggested or has you know shown that she holds so the second um, 
requirement of testimonial smothering is that the audience demonstrates testimonial incompetence. And I think what's important uh, from, or one thing that's really important from this section is the difference between understanding everything and being competent. So when an audience or a hearer can understand the testimony and identify their failures to understand, detect their failures to understand, this is called accurate intellig intelligibility. So when the hearer knows when they know and knows when they don't know, this is accurate intelligibility. And testimonial competence is when from the speaker's perspective, the audience has demonstrated that um, things are being accurately understood in this accurate intelligibility kind of way. So testimonial incompetence is the failure of the audience to demonstrate to the, to the speaker that they find the offered testimony accurately intelligible. So the audience um, shows to the speaker that they can't tell when they've understood, when there's a misunderstanding, and when they just don't know. And the, the last um, requirement for testimonial smothering is that this testimonial incompetence follows from, or at least appears to follow from, pernicious ignorance. So as a result of these three circumstances, a speaker smothers their testimony. So Dodson gives us an example to illustrate this from um, Cassandra Byers Harbin's article where she is in the library working on a project and a white woman um, in her 50s asks, asks Harbin what she's working on and Harbin says that she's working on a project about what it's like to raise black sons in the U.S. And the woman's, the white woman's response is, how is raising black sons in the U.S. any different from raising white sons? So you might have noticed that I tried to make a, a little, I tried to use a bit of a snarky tone because one thing that Dodson says is tone is important, right? We can imagine the, the exact same question in a different t tone, right? Oh, tell me how it's different. Oh, yeah, it's, it's of course it's different. How, how is it different? What have you, what have you found? Um, so you know obviously tone is something that's very important which I, I think a lot of us knows so this is testimonial smothering because it's un unsafe risky testimony because of the many negative um, what Dodson calls controlling images of black men in the US there's good reason to think that test testimony about them runs the risk of reinforcing these negative racist images there's the indication from the hearer that the that they're not testimonial testimonially competent so that's this um, racial microaggression that's this this question back with the with the tone and this testimonial incompetence appears to follow from from harmful ignorance from pernicious ignorance and Dotson says look we can think that this is reliable ignorance because it's situated ignorance. It's, it's a not knowing that's the product of being socially located somewhere, being socially located, um, being, being white in the US. That's the, that's the social location that is an epistemic location that um, is probably why this white woman 
doesn't know that there's a difference. And there's harm. Harvin was harmed. Harvin wrote um, wrote about how you know frustrating uh, this was. So I'll just finish with uh, a, a quick review of the conclusion. So we've arrived at the conclusion of this section. So of the paper. So Dodson says, one of the difficulties of tracking practices of silence is that they're hard to point to. They're very quiet. Even harder when we're talking about coerced self-silencing, as with testimonial smothering. The understanding of epistemic violence and testimony that Dodson has outlined can aid in identifying practices of silencing by dispersing the burden of proof for proving the existence of practices of silencing between a speaker and an audience, as opposed to the sole burden being placed on the speaker who has been silenced. Dodson has identified this failure of an audience to fulfill the demands of reciprocity required for a successful linguistic exchange that's caused by pernicious ignorance as epistemic violence. And that's the end of our lecture today. Have a really wonderful reading week, and I will see you in um, after that week. Okay, bye.